0: Good morning everyone, all right Um, so obviously I'm uh, thankful again for another opportunity to preach to you guys we're going to be picking up with uh, the parables that we've been going through and uh, just even as uh, James prayed this morning um, as we're transitioning out of COVID um, with all the quarantine restrictions and COVID precautions I was just starting to feel like we're getting back to more normal that obviously we've got some vacations so some folks are out but but it's nice to have everyone together full auditorium we're able to worship together um in some ways it feels like we've missed kind of a whole year of life for some folks um you know I think about uh just how several of you have commented just how big Lucy's getting how much Liam has grown um you know for the others that have been born during COVID that that for some of us like they went from not being here to now they're walking Um, i saw theo walking this morning and it's just how much has changed and how quickly all that passed with um covid and so it does it feels like in some ways we've missed entire years of life so um where we're at uh liam is finally starting to sleep through the night which we are thankful for um everyone in the house is thankful for of course you know last night he he cried out at one o'clock in the morning and So we wrestled with that, but for the most part, he's consistently sleeping through the night, which is great. We're already starting to see him demonstrate that strong will. I don't know where he gets it from, Um, but uh, he's already uh, decided that green beans are not his favorite, and he will not eat them if he doesn't have to. Um, And I I said this to Janelle the other day, what if Liam's our stubborn child? Um, If you know Lucy, she's very strong-willed. She's very determined, too. But what we've noticed with Lucy is that she started to become sneaky. Um, She started to become creative in how she uh, exercises her will. So the biggest battleground that we've seen recently is with bedtime and the nighttime routine. And any of y'all who have raised little ones, you know that 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 can be challenging. The the whole get everyone down and asleep. Um, You almost have to put your armor on and get ready to fight that battle uh, and so that's where we are with Lucy now the typical routine is we get them we get both of them ready for bed um, and then one of us wrangles Liam while we read Bible story and goodnight books with Lucy and then uh, we get her tucked in and we get her settled and then we close the door and it's time to sleep that's the way that it had been going for several months until one night we, we, we get her settled we wave goodnight, we blow kisses, I close the door, and then all of a sudden it's, <gasps> Daddy! And she's wailing. I thought, what has happened? Did she fall out? Has she, is she bleeding? I open the door. I was like, sweetheart, what's going on? Daddy, the closet door is not closed all the way. <sighs> I know, I know. just it, it melts your heart right there. So I go and I close the closet door, and I get her settled back down, and we go to sleep. And, and she's quiet and she's, she's sleeping and, and, and everything's good. But then the next night it was something else. I don't remember what it was. And then the next night it's something else. And so what we discovered was is that uh, this now had transitioned from something bothers me to I want everything my way. And Lucy's very particular, so the closet needs to be closed, and the blanket needs to be on the chair just the right way, and there doesn't need to be any wrinkles in the rug, and all the stuffed animals need to have their place. Mm-hmm. Um, and we follow all the procedures. Um, otherwise, as soon as, that clo- or as soon as the door clicks shut for her room, it's weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth as if, as if like, the world is ending. Well, we can't do that forever. Like, we got we to gotta work through this. And so then the saga had become an obedience issue because it's we'd we get her to bed. All right, Lucy, it's time to go to sleep. It, you, you don't need to get up. You don't need to cry out unless you're hurt because um, we want her to know if she's hurt, she can come out. But unless you're hurt, you need to stay quiet. The problem was, so we tell her, if you didn't do that, then there'd be consequences. We do discipline. Um, the issue that we discovered is that after repeating that for about two weeks, the discipline wasn't doing the job, because it wasn't keeping her from, from crying out, from getting out of bed, from, from being wailing about something. And what we had discovered was that, that even though there was discipline, that the warning wasn't doing its job, because Lucy had decided, you know, it, the, the, the little economist in her had decided that the discipline was worth getting what I wanted, that it was worth being able to have that control. That doesn't sound like any of y'all's kids in here, I know, but, um, but that's what she had learned because we weren't f- enforcing the discipline well. It, and it wasn't because we weren't giving the discipline, but I'd discipline and then we would fix whatever it was and I'd comfort her and I'd get her settled. Until, and, and we couldn't figure out like, like how is this continuing until one night, round two of this saga, and I just go in, discipline, and then Lucy, good night, and that's it. Close the door. And when I when I came out that night, I was like, "What happened?" Because it was quiet. Like there was no wailing. There was no. it, It was almost like Lucy was shocked because we didn't do what I don't even remember what it was that she wanted done. And and from then on, I think she tested us once. But from then on, the warning now is effective because. She doesn't get what she wants. She just gets the discipline. Now, it's, it's delivered kindly and we love her, but, but she now knows wailing is only gonna get her discipline. It's not going to get her what she wants, the adjustment in the animals or the chair or the closet, um, that uh, she's, gonna have to, she's gonna have to learn that the, obe- the warning is real and the requirement of obedience, like that's genuine. You have to obey. And I want her to learn that because that's how life works. That's how God relates to us. And as we turn to Matthew 13, I want you to think of this parable that we're going to look at. It's a warning from God as a loving father to his children. From a heart of love, God warns of judgment that will come to those who choose their own way over the kingdom. Which brings us then to the main takeaway this morning, which is, which is this. When Jesus warns of judgment, our response reveals whether we love and trust King Jesus. Once again, when Jesus warns of judgment, our response reveals whether we love and trust King Jesus. And so as we turn to Matthew 13, uh, verse 47, we're going to look at the parable of the dragnet this morning in these three steps. We're going to work through an explanation of the parable, what's going on. We're going to compare and contrast this dragnet parable with another parable, warning of judgment. And then we're going to um, consider the message then of this parable to Jesus' audience and to us. So, Matthew 13, verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. <clears throat> and so, to understand what's going on uh, in this parable, we do need to have the right picture of fishing in our minds, and it's not the rod and reel fishing that we would be used to. Uh, most of the time, in the New Testament, when they talk about fishing, um, when we see it referenced with the disciples, we think of net casting, where they have a net that's maybe twice as wide as, as, you know, my fingers here, and one person would take it either from a boat or from the shore, they'd throw it into the water, there'd be stones on the end, it would sink down, and then they would pull a line that would gather it all together and then whatever's in the net, they'd, they'd haul it to shore or haul it into the boat. That's what we would normally think of. That would be commonly what they would be doing. That's actually not the word that Jesus uses. What he uses in this parable, this is the only time that he uses it is a, a dragnet. What we might think of is like trawling in Charleston where, where there's this giant net and its goal is to gather everything. The, the efficiency is it doesn't miss anything. So these would be big giant nets and the way that they would work is they would either um, either have a couple of boats or they'd have a boat and, and the other uh, part of the team would be on the shore and they'd stretch out this big long net and then they would sweep it in and in kind, of kind of a pincer to gather it all together and then, excuse me, and then drag that to the shore. And the goal is to get everything, that nothing escapes that net. And so the goal then in capturing everything is that it doesn't matter at the time of the fishing, like it doesn't matter what's in the net. They're going to get it all, and then they'll deal with sifting through it later. And so this would be a, a, a much larger scale operation. The net casting you could do solo, but this would require a team. There'd be organization. Obviously, in the parable, we've got uh, fishermen working together to gather it all in and to do the sorting and the sifting. And um, anything and everything that was in the way of this net is caught. And so now that we understand the picture of... The fishing picture that Jesus is referencing here, Um, let's dig into the parable and see who our cast of characters is, Um, because we want to understand, understanding the cast of characters helps us understand what Jesus' meaning in this parable is. So the first uh, character is actually the net itself. The net is a picture of this future all-encompassing judgment. That's what Jesus is referencing, that one day there will be a judgment that is so expansive that it encapsulates everybody that no one escapes from this judgment so that's the net second there are the fishermen um, the fishermen who do the sorting Uh, and and Jesus is very clear these are the angels who are basically separating people into righteous and unrighteous those who are going to um, experience eternal life those who are going to experience judgment Um, third are the fish um, that's you and me uh, the fish are being sorted uh, which are all people being separated according to the standard uh, that's being applied and that standard is applied or that standard is 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 overseen and given by the authority the authority then is an Im- it's an implicit character um, because we don't see the authority clearly defined in the parable but it's the master of the fisherman it's the one who gives the fisherman here's the standard here's what a good fish looks like here's what a bad fish looks like and that's jesus jesus is the one who gives that standard Um, and even though it's not explicit in the parable um, the angels do the sorting but we know and jesus audience would have known as well that the one who does the ultimate judging is god is jesus who does that judgment who even if the angels are the ones that are carrying out that judgment and so that's what's going on in the parable now um if the image of judgment sounds familiar in this passage uh, it's because there's, there's actually another parable of judgment that Jesus gives just before this um, that, well, it's probably been a few years now since we walked through that one, but that's the wheat and the weeds parable. Um, and that wheat weed and weeds parable is also about judgment. We see just a quick summary of that parable. So a farmer plants weeds in a, or wheat in a field, and an enemy comes and sows weeds in that field. The workers discover the weeds and they want to dig out the weeds, but the master says no because they're not qualified or capable of removing the weeds without potentially destroying the wheat. Instead, the master tells him, leave the weeds until harvest. We're gonna harvest everything. And then that's when the decision will be made. We'll assess the weeds will get stored in the barn, or sorry, the weed will get stored in the barn. The weeds will get burned in the fire and then we'll have our harvest. Um, And what he tells the workers then is, don't worry about the weeds, do the work of the kingdom. Um, They're supposed to be doing kingdom work knowing knowing that there are, lost people in the body, that there will be unsaved people in and among us. Um, but were, instead of trying to figure out who it is, they're to be trusting that God sees, God knows, and then doing the work of the kingdom, proclaiming the gospel, both to lost people, but also speaking the gospel to each other as we, as we communicate, this is, how gospel living, uh, this is what gospel living looks like. And so in both, parable, both parables, the weed and the weeds, and this dragnet parable, Jesus is emphasizing that judgment is going to take place. It is a certainty that, that judgment will come, but that there's important work to do before the judgment. Um, each kingdom citizen, each believer, should be considering their own spiritual condition in light of these warnings, not trying to determine what everyone else's spiritual condition is. The goal is not to be on a witch hunt to determine, um, you know, looking out over the crowd, oh, well, that person loves Jesus, that person really doesn't love Jesus. The goal is actually to consider your own heart are you Are you a good fish or a bad fish? Are you doing the work of the kingdom and so uh, that that 's what Jesus is emphasizing, and we see this time and again this idea of 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 if we know what 's going to happen, we want to try and it, it, the desire of we, we want to know the future so that we can change things now. Um, we see that culturally we 're very familiar with that, and yet um, We see that time and again, So sorry, so we tend to think that if we know the future, if we know what's gonna happen, then we can change things so that we're not gonna experience whatever that that bad thing is. If we knew judgment was coming, well, we would just do this, this, and this, and we'd avoid that judgment. We like to believe that that's how we would do that, but we see plenty of examples in scripture where that's that's just not true. Um, We see in the garden, God gives Adam and Eve a paradise and one prohibition. And he says, if you eat of this tree, that I told you not to, you're going to experience judgment and death. And yet that's what they do. God offers the nation of Israel, the land of Canaan. And yet, and he promises he's going to deliver it to them. But when Moses sends the, the spies in, they come back, bad report. And now instead of obeying God and trusting that God's going to keep his promise, they, they refuse out of fear. So God says, all right, you're going to spend 40 years in the wilderness. Well, then we have people who are like, oh, we changed our mind. We are going to go in and, and we are going to obey, but it's too late. They go in, and they experience more suffering and more death, that the group that tries to go in and take the land, because God has said, no, now you're not going to get the land. We see this even with the, in, the entire history of the nation of Israel, where, where God continually sends prophets to, to remind them, you're going to experience judgment because of your idolatry, because of, because of your failure to obey, the law and instead you're making treaties with these other nations to protect yourself and the irony is as you read the latter half of the old testament with the with the prophets as far as what's going on god continues to say you're going to experience judgment these four nations are going to come and conquer you so what do they do instead of trusting god they continue to make treaties and try and develop relationships and protection from these four nations which actually makes them more vulnerable and results in their ultimate downfall and so we see that every time a person or people in scripture took a promise or a warning from God and tried to use it to their own advantage, we see that the ultimate result was sin and suffering. It was judgment and it was death. And so why these two parables concerning judgment? Well, Jesus wants to emphasize that judgment is coming and then we need to respond to it in a way that is consistent with, with what he requires from us, not judgment's coming so we do what we try and figure it out on our own. So why these two parables, though? Well, it's not uncommon in this chapter. Jesus actually pairs parables together intentionally so that he can show the same truth, but a couple of different facets of that truth. We see that with the treasure in the field and the pearl of great value to picture the kingdom surpassing value and worth from someone who's a day laborer, somebody who's wealthy, so so across the spectrum. Um, We see that with the leaven and mustard seed seed, to show the kingdom growth is both explosive in numbers, but also is transformative on the inside as well. So how are these two judgment parables different? What are the facets that Jesus is communicating? Particularly, what's he trying to communicate with this dragnet parable? So the first way that they're different is their emphasis. In the wheat and weeds, Jesus is emphasizing a gentle but firm reminder that your purpose in the kingdom is to do the kingdom work, not to try and figure out who who's in, who's out, not to be checking everybody's kingdom card. But it's but it's to be doing the work of the kingdom. In the net parable, Jesus is emphasizing the certainty and the severity of the judgment. And so what he's encouraging then his audience who's listening is judgment is coming, examine your own heart. Consider you, where are you at? Are you a good fish or are you a bad fish? And so um it, it, it's as if with one hand, in the wheat and weeds, he's trying to redirect uh, folks back to kingdom work. Well, so it's a, a it's a, a gentle redirecting. Whereas in the wheat or in the um, the dragnet parable, it's this it's this hard confrontational warning of of judgment. So I want you, Jesus is saying, I want you to be about the kingdom work, but consider your own heart. And so we see uh, second difference is. The way that these two judgment parables are different is the audience that he's speaking to. In the Wheat and Weeds parable, that's to the crowd. There are, there are these large crowds, and he's sharing these parables, and he gives that parable to the crowd. And, and the Wheat and Weeds parable, the narrative is more engaging, it's longer, it's more story oriented. Um, it's, it's intended to, to spark the curiosity of the crowd and give them something to chew on, something to think about. Whereas the Dragnet parable, is just to the disciples, and so it's it's shorter, it's starker, it's something that that's more confrontational in its nature. That Jesus is 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 laying out that decision point for them. That that he wants them to consider: Where are you? Where's your heart? Um, are you are you a good fish or a bad fish? And so, as we we've walked through the parable, we've compared and contrasted with the wheat and the weeds. Now we're going to dig into this parable specifically and what what Jesus wants his audience and what he wants us to take away from this parable. And we see that even in the structure of how Jesus has built these parables so that they're going to build to this crescendo moment. He begins with the parable of the four soils. There's only one kind of good soil, Um, or one kind of soil, the good soil that receives the word and produces fruit. In the wheat and weeds parable, we see that, that those who receive the word, their job is to do the kingdom work, proclaiming God's kingdom. The leaven and mustard seed parables communicate the value of the kingdom, or sorry, the, the growth of the, the kingdom. The treasure and pearl parables communicate the value of the kingdom. And in this parable, the dragnet, Jesus is warning them that when the kingdom work is finished and the master takes the final tally, the good fish are going to be kept, the bad fish are going to be discarded. And the question that Matthew, in, telling, in structuring these parables this way, that he's that he's forcing upon the readers is how will you respond to this warning how will i respond to this warning and how you and i respond to this warning reveals then whether we love and trust king jesus do we believe what he says will we follow will we follow his commands will we obey will we submit because when jesus warns our response reveals then whether we love and trust him And so to answer that question, we're going to look at what Jesus is communicating with this warning and what his expectation is from us as his audience. So when Jesus confronts the disciples with this warning of judgment, the first thing that he communicates is his claim of authority. The fact that he's giving a warning, he is is declaring that he is the authority that's going to bring this judgment. That's the nature of warnings. When I warn Lucy, stay in bed or discipline's going to happen, I don't go through all of the the details of of because I'm your dad and because I'm the one who's in charge and I'm responsible for you and I have to give an account and my authority is derived from God. Like like we're not doing treatise here. It's stay in bed, I love you, stay in bed. Um, but even that stay in bed is is a declaration of authority. It is I have this responsibility. I'm the authority, and I have the right to bring consequences if you don't obey. Again, it's not because it's not because I'm mean old dad they're not going to let me do anything fun it's, it's, that's my responsibility and those are the important truths that she's going to need to learn because, because I, I want her to know and relate to God as an authority in the right way and recognizing that, that obedience brings blessing disobedience brings judgment discipline um, discomfort pain suffering um, that disobedience is, is not the way you want to go at the same time, she's not even four yet. So we, you know, we, we want to keep it simple. Authority, you need to obey. And that's, uh, but when I do warn her, I am declaring my authority. Um, even though, you know, I, like I said, I don't, have to, I don't have to wear a sign that says I'm the authority. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing in this parable. He doesn't explicitly declare himself to be the judge, to be the master over these fishermen, but he doesn't have to. The fact that he's making this claim, or th- that he's giving this warning, is making this claim that he can enforce that, uh, that warning. He is the one who will judge. And so, uh, while he doesn't explicitly declare that he's, he's the master, from the, fir- from the first day he began proclaiming the kingdom in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is making it clear that he is the king who is proclaiming the kingdom. He's declaring himself king. Who will judge all people. He sets the standard of what's righteous, what's evil, what's right, what's wrong. He's the one who decides, looking out at us, who is conformed to God's standard and who has not. The problem that we face is that none of us conform to God's standard. And so while he's giving that warning, at the same time, he's the one who, in sacrificing himself, will meet that standard on our behalf. And so, um, what does Jesus' claim of authority then mean for you and me? Well, according to the, just from the parable, in this parable, we're the fish. And no fish escapes the net, so we're all going to face this judgment. It's not something that anyone's going to escape from. Each fish is individually assessed, so fish one doesn't, doesn't get a pass because fish two is a good fish. Um, we also will face judgment individually for our own actions, deeds, thoughts, motives. Uh, we don't get to ride anyone else's coattails um, and and, and, and it, it, as far as being able to escape judgment from, from uh, we don't get to ride anyone else's coattails through uh, being approved. And then the fish doesn't get to decide what the standard of the judgment is. The fish doesn't get to say, well, I'm a good fish, I'm a good fish. It doesn't matter. Um, the master of the fisherman, Jesus the judge does. And it would be easy for us to assume then, because we're all here, we're listening to the word, we're, we're uh, in church on Sunday when we could be doing lots of other things, that, that we all must be good fish. Surely we wouldn't be here if we were a bad fish, right? Um, and our culture would even say that, that really the ultimate standard is you. As long as you approve of, of, of who you are or that you're your most authentic self, then, then you must be a good fish. But we know that that's just not true, that, that Jesus confronts that even with the warning in this parable that he sets the standard. He's the authority. He's the one who determines whether or not we're righteous. He has that right. He has that authority because, because he's God, because he made us. And so he declares that authority. So what, what is that standard? How can I know whether Jesus' warning of judgment should be a comfort to me because he's going to make all things right and, and <coughs> he will be the one that, that declares me righteous because I put my faith and trust in him or that his claim of authority should terrify me because I stand condemned, um, because I have not conformed to his standard. Does my heart relax at the idea of his authority because I'm resting in that authority or does my heart bristle at that authority because, because I wanna be my own authority. I don't want someone else to tell me what to do, how to do life, um, uh, to to put constraints on my desire, my, my will. And so, ha- like, how do we know then that we are actually conforming to God's standard? How do we know that our life is reflective of someone who, who has responded appropriately to Jesus' claim of authority and is submissive to that authority? Well, Matthew actually gives us two diagnostic truths in his gospel to help examine our response to Jesus' warning of judgment. So truth number one, uh, we see in Matthew 25, Matthew 25, I'll read it quickly. You don't need to turn there. Uh, Matthew 25, verse 31. So when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels are with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, come, you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or feed you or thirsty or give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food; I was thirsty and you gave me no drink; I was a stranger and you did not welcome me; naked and you did not clothe me; sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, "Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison, and did not minister to you?" And then he will say to them, and then he will answer them, saying, "Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me." And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And the first truth that Matthew gives us, or this first diagnostic truth, is that actions matter. Like what we do matters as far as communicating what's going on in our heart. Those actions reveal whether or not we are responding rightly to Jesus' claim of authority. For all believers here this morning, God has shown grace to us. And a heart that has received grace is a heart that will then minister grace to others. Um, and it's through obvious, practical meeting of needs of those around you. Jesus says that the truth in this passage is that genuine believers demonstrate grace because they've received grace, and it has tangible effects. It has observable behaviors of, of ministering to the needs of others. The other side of that truth, though, is that those who, those who are not ministering, those who claim that they've received the grace that God has given them through salvation, those who claim that but don't actually do any practical ministry, don't actually love and serve their neighbor, that should concern them greatly. It's evidence that, that they're not actually responding to Jesus' claim of authority or those who would just flat out reject Jesus' authority for their own. And both of those are subject to the very judgment that Jesus is warning about in this parable. The second truth builds on this first truth, and we see that second truth in Matthew 7. So in Matthew seven twenty-one through 23, um, near the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. If the first truth is that actions matter, the second truth is that actions by themselves are not enough. That Jesus will judge our hearts as well. And so if we want, if we want to fall into the bucket of good fish, it's not just about what we do. It's also about what's going on inside of our hearts, who we are. And... And Jesus makes it very clear that, that there's a, there a huge disparity, a huge gap between the I-never-knew-you people and the if you did it to the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And that gap is whether or not the people who proclaim that they love Jesus, that they know Jesus, have actually been transformed inside. And they're, they're then producing those actions, uh, practical ministry, but also in their hearts, they're recognizing Jesus' claim of authority. And so we see that's the crux of this warning, that there is, there is something that distinguishes these two groups. And Jesus makes it clear that, that there will be those who appear outwardly to recognize this claim of authority, but it doesn't actually affect the way that they do life because it hasn't actually transformed their heart. In the sports world, we would call these people casual fans, um, people who, who, when the team is winning, they support whoever is winning. Um, to, to the degree that you, like, when did you become a fan of such and such team? Um, it's the same way here in the, in, in the buckle state of the Bible Belt, where, where everyone seemingly knows Jesus, and yet Jesus says, literally says, that, that to many of those people who say they know Jesus, that he doesn't know them. Well, how can that be? Well, that's because in the dragnet parable, Jesus communicates more than just his claim of authority. He's also communicating to them to, to them, to me, to you, to everyone, um, as righteous, holy Creator and God. Yes, He's the authority, but also um, His goal is not just slavish obedience. God is not interested in robots who just do whatever He says. He's declaring His authority, but He's also calling for allegiance from from each of us. From His creation, of, from His creation of Adam and Eve, God has always desired that we, His created image bearers, would would love him in response to the love that he has shown us. Uh, from, that, from the very beginning, God has been a God of action pursuing us, humans who have rejected his authority, his word, his warnings, and have pursued our own way. And God has been pursuing humanity, but us individually as well from the very beginning. He began that with Adam and Eve, pursuing, chasing Desiring to restore that relationship that was severed because of their disobedience. And even with that pursuit, being reconciled to God is more than just acknowledging Jesus' authority. It really comes back to not just God is the authority, and so I'm going to obey, and, and now everything is good. It's, it's recognizing that God, it's not just my authority, that He loves me, that He is, is pursuing me, that He wants to rescue me, which, which requires that we own the fact that we are sinful and selfish, that we apart from God are his enemy and that we can't save ourselves and we need him to rescue us. The demons acknowledge Jesus' authority in the Gospels, but not because they have any hope of rescue from future judgment. That's because Jesus' warning is more than just a claim of authority. It's a warning that he's calling us to allegiance. He's calling us to, to embrace our identity in him. And Matthew shows us what that submission and allegiance looks like uh, in Matthew 8. So we see in Matthew 8, verse 5, He says, When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes, and to my servant, Do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled. He was astonished. And said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you that no one in Israel have I found such faith. With no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And from that passage, we see what what that allegiance looks like, someone who is, who is recognizing Jesus' authority, but also submissive to that authority and embracing their identity in Jesus. First, we see that the centurion obviously understands how authority works. He's a soldier, he understands chain of command, he understands both being under authority, but also exercising authority. And so th- the idea that Jesus would be an authority I- is not foreign to him. What makes it interesting though, is that in that culture at that time, the Romans were the conquering authority. Like they ran Israel. Um, Israel was a was a vassal nation and and yet this Roman centurion, a man of, of social prominence, social standing with real power and authority is submitting himself to this conquered nation traveling Jewish rabbi. Like that just doesn't That just doesn't happen naturally. That's not a place that that this man is going to put himself of his own accord unless unless something has drastically changed in his heart. Because the Romans occupy as conquerors and yet he pleads with Jesus for help because he doesn't just obey Jesus as an authority. He recognizes and embraces Jesus' call for allegiance with submission. He would, whatever Jesus had told him to do, he would have done it. Um, At the same time though, uh, we see that it's not just, he doesn't just understand how authority works. He, he is embracing his identity in Jesus. His identity as a Roman soldier is not what defines who he is. It's actually his standing in the kingdom that defines who he is. And we actually see that better reflected in Luke's take on the same account. As Luke records this, this, this account in greater detail, in Luke's account it actually says that, that, that the centurion actually sends a delegation of Jews, of the Jewish elders, to speak with Jesus, and the Jewish elders go and they say, "Here's this centurion. He is, hes a good man. He loves you. He loves God. He loves our nation. He built our synagogue. He cares for us. You should do this for him. Um, he has a Please, please heal his servant." Now, what's interesting is that that's not when Jesus marvels. Jesus is not marveling at this man's righteousness. The point where he marvels is is that is that when they communicate that this man understands authority and he is he is submissive to Jesus' authority, that Jesus marveling is that that this man, this Roman, who has, who has no reason, so sh- n- like there's no incentive for him in his modern culture to do what he's doing other than he loves Jesus. And yet, many of the Jews in his day who are hearing the word, who grew up with the scriptures, who have been looking for the promised Messiah, they're rejecting him. And what Jesus marvels at is that stark contrast between someone who shouldn't for all for all intents and purposes, should not have any incentive or desire to embrace Jesus as the authority to give his allegiance to Jesus. And yet he's the one who does it. At the same time that the Jews who should be, they don't. And that's what shocks Jesus. Not because he doesn't know that that's happening, not because, because he was surprised by it, but it's just because it's so shocking. that that And, and and we see in other passages where, where Jesus weeps over the city of Jerusalem because of that, because the people who should embrace him and love him are rejecting him. And so it's then when Jesus marvels, not, not because the centurion's faith is, is what it is, even though that's to be commended, Jesus marvels at the contrast between this Roman and the Jews. And rather than submit and repent... The Jews who have been hearing this message from Jesus, instead of repenting, submitting, and embracing Jesus, they crucify him. Because he's challenged their identity, which reveals that their identity was never in Jesus. Their identity was in themselves and holding on to power and preserving their monopoly on the religious system of the day, which is the complete opposite of the heart of the centurion who's willing to let all of his worldly identity go because he's consumed with his submission, his allegiance to Jesus, and so we see then that this ensuring this Gentile has received the kingdom. He's responded to Jesus' call of authority. He's responded to Jesus, or, sorry, his claim of authority. His call for allegiance by submitting to Jesus' authority and embracing his identity in Jesus. A- and that's the difference between the good fish and the bad fish in this parable. We know that it's not just actions. We know that that it's it's the heart, and it's a heart that says, "I recognize your authority, and I am." I embrace Jesus and, and submit to whatever Jesus requires of me. And so while this dragnet parable is a very clear warning, we know that in a healthy relationship, it does, it's not all about warnings. Um, warnings are only that very small part. When I warn Lucy that getting out of bed is going to result in discipline, I am declaring that authority, but I would much rather her obey me because she loves me and that authority, then, if the relationship is healthy, that 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 warning is not the way that we interact. It is not the sum total of our relationship. I don't delight in doling out consequences for for her uh, not obeying. Um, what I delight in is is building that relationship with her, because she knows that that daddy's trustworthy, that she can rely on me, that 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 I love her, and so how I respond when she disregards the warning actually communicates volumes not just about me but about about who God is so I wanted to know that God is trustworthy God's reliable God's fair God's just God's loving I wanted to be convinced of all those things about about me because I want a a healthy relationship with her but more importantly I wanted to be convinced about those things because they're true about God and so for Lucy that warning is just a small part of our relationship and and taken together with the time that we spend together reading books or riding her bike or swinging on the swings in her garage or, or um, you know, watching her, watching Finding Nemo for the hundredth time because it's one of her favorite movies. Um, all of those things together are that relationship. And the warning is just a very small part. That's, that's what God wants with our relationship with him. This warning is critical. It's, it's, it's something that reveals what's going on in our hearts, but it's not supposed to be the sum total of our relationship. With God. And and so Jesus' warning of judgment then is not a shout from an angry or enraged um, or capricious authority. His warning is a demonstration of love from a kind and compassionate Father, who wants relationship, who desires reconciliation, who wants us to be restored to Him. We know that that Jesus intended this warning to be serious and sobering for the disciples that He's giving it to. But we know that he cares for them, that he loves them, that he's patient with them, that he's kind with them, that he teaches them, that he serves them, that he washes their feet, and that he ultimately dies for them. So this warning is not a warning that comes out of, he, he's not angry with them, he loves them. He's calling them to respond both to his authority, but also to embrace him with their allegiance, with their love, with their affection, with their desire to follow him and submit. And so we see that the disciples' response to Jesus' warning in this parable then and our response to kingdom warnings reveal whether we love and trust King Jesus. And I pray that we respond like the centurion submitting to Jesus' authority and embracing his allegiance to King Jesus with our own. Let's pray.